Hey, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be with you. It is seven minutes after eel after ten o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Um, before I get into the uh, uh, Show Me Institute topic, I, I I played the audio of this mother who lost her children to fentanyl poisoning, and I laid out who I thought was responsible for this. And I knew people would get upset with me for this, and a lot of people are trying to call in. So listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait about 15 minutes, and by, by 20 after or so, I will take your calls. Whether you agree with me or you disagree with me, uh, I'll let you have your say. But you just have to wait because Patrick Ishmael is with us. And uh, Patrick has a couple of uh, interesting topics that, we got, that we've got to get to. He is the Director of Government Accountability at the Show Me Institute. Some Missouri institutions of higher learning have taken it a step further by requiring the equivalent of a loyalty oath to diversity uh, initiatives as a condition of employment. Patrick, who is doing that? Oh, man, it's a pretty lengthy list, Gary. Um, so we uh, posted a blog on our website that actually goes through the list of the uh, state universities that are uh, have uh, in their job listings, at least some of their job listings, uh, requirements that uh, candidates say what they uh, believe about DEI, what they support about diversity, equity, inclusion, a lot of like political issues. Uh, the list is Missouri State, at least, UMSL, UMKC. The University of Central Missouri. Uh, the University of Central Missouri was asking for a librarian, uh, and what they require is that they want that candidate to incorporate social justice into their work and focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racist efforts. Uh, the University of Missouri, uh, or a, a listing for a math professor, notes that an applicant who can employ justice-oriented frameworks, uh, for example, anti-racist, abolitionist, decolonial, in, indigenous uh, aspects into the work, that would be a preferred candidate. Now, of course, when you start talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, I think those are really kind of soft words. And so the, the concern here is that if you're going to try to demand that candidates attest to certain things, ideological things about diversity, equity, inclusion, or all anti-racism, all those sorts of things, that what there really is is a loyalty of it's almost like a litmus test that can actually affect who gets hired or who even applies for these jobs. And so when you're talking about librarians and math professors, why why are we hiring or why are we trying to hire uh, uh, decolonializing math math professors uh, when what we should be doing is hiring the best math professor for the University of Missouri or for the best librarian for um, the University of Central Missouri. Um, that's the concern here is that in these job applications or in these uh, job listings that a lot of these universities are including language, including requirements, including burdens on applicants that may actually uh, have a kind of viewpoint discrimination that affects not only who the university hires, but the quality of education that uh, I think a lot of kids will get. Now, we've already gotten a response from uh, the, the president of uh, the University of Missouri system. Um, uh, he says that uh, that they are they don't have loyalty oath, and you know I think our, our readers can certainly make their own judgments about you know what the university has asked for in these job uh, listings and what uh, the university president is saying. But the, the the key here though is that none of this kind of woke nonsense should be in these job listings. That should not be a prerequisite to get a job with the University of Missouri system or any state university. What we want is the best professors in their in their subject matter and requiring this kind of woke nonsense as a prerequisite to even get hired, I think is, is bad news for the university and for students. 
you know, the whole concept is wrong. I don't, I don't want um, equity and inclusion. I don't want equity, especially don't want equity. Uh, I don't want everybody to be equal in any way. I want everybody to be at their own level. And I, would th I think some people are going to excel. Some people are not. Some people will be stronger in one place, other in another. Uh, the whole idea, and I, and I actually think that we ought to rearrange it uh, so that it says uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Because then it would be the right acronym. It would be DIE. Because that's what they're doing. They're killing um, freedom in this country with this nonsense. Well, and I, I think that uh, it, it's really important that if, if you're using taxpayer dollars, that you're using them for their, your, their highest intended purpose. And if you're trying to hire for a university, you need to be hiring the best subject matter experts so that it's best education. You don't want to have just a, a giant groupthink operation going uh, where, uh, you know, university professors are hired and everyone thinking the exact same way. And, and to your question of, you know, what should uh, the university be doing with this DEI stuff. I mean, I, I support diversity of thought, diversity of background. I think, you know, folks want uh, everyone to be included in this enterprise that is the United States. I think that from the perspective of equity, equity in a lot of uh, ways simply means that you have a stake. You know, if we talk about stocks, uh, those are equity uh, uh, items. And so I, I can entertain the idea of having like, you know, we want diversity, we want, we want equity, and we want inclusion. But I think the real question is, well, what does that actually mean in the context of the university setting? What is it that the people who are looking at these job listings and who decide who gets hired, what is their view of what diversity, equity, and inclusion is? And, and if that's, you know, or, uh, you know, if the listing has anti-racism uh, included. And I mean, one of the tenets of anti-racism is that if you are not actively against racism, that you are yourself a racist. And, and so if you're requiring attestations about anti-racism, you're like, well, you know, I don't know that I believe that the Supreme Court is inherently racist, for instance. Uh, that actually implicates a whole lot. So the words themselves matter. The definitions behind them matter. The perception of the people making the judgments about who gets hired for these jobs matters. Uh, and so regardless of, of kind of what our stance might be on you know, the, the sort of uh, parallel uh, administrative system that uh, DEI kind of pushes a lot of uh, social justice, woke nonsense. It, it, as to these job listings, these words and their definitions absolutely matter. And this, the, the notion that they have no bearing on uh, who gets hired, I mean, why are they in the job listing? Why does the University of Missouri have this language in uh, at least one of their job listings? And, and I would presume others as well. And you see it in job listings across the state. You know, again, UMSL, UMKC, uh, University of Central Missouri, it's all over the place. And, and my, my other concern, of course, is that no doubt this is going to filter down into K-12 education. Uh, it's just like with critical race theory where, you know, they claim that this is just a university uh, concept or a university class, and then suddenly it starts showing up in K-12. I think that uh, if it hasn't shown up in K-12 yet, uh, it probably will be showing up very soon, these requirements that you attest to supporting the sort of woke nonsense that the universities are already requiring applicants, at least in some cases, to attest to right now. I agree with everything you said, Patrick, but I do think that ultimately what they're looking for is equality in outcome, and I don't think that's uh, a goal that you should have. You are absolutely right. If you're going to have a math professor, have them be the best math professor you can hire with my dollars, not the one who is socially aware. I want them to teach and teach well. 
there, I'm, I'm, I'm fast running out of time, so I want to move on. A new push to reform expungement laws. Uh, over the past years, a uh, few years, the uh, Clean State Initiative has picked up steam in the, in the state capital and other uh, capitals around the country. Uh, what's going on with that? Yeah, I, you know, I think that, you know, when the founders founded this country, and, you know, folks 200 years ago probably wouldn't have imagined that uh, people would have such easy access to uh, criminal records, you know, just having it available online. And I, I think that it's important to have transparency in government. But I, I do think that there is kind of a, a nuance when you're talking about transparency in personal records. Like, for instance, we don't uh, uh, pursue... Uh, or we can't really access people's income tax returns, and I think that's appropriate. But with expungement, the, the, the question is, should everything that uh, someone has done wrong with the past, every crime that they've ever committed in the past, always uh, kind of follow them for the rest of their lives? And I think in a lot of cases, the answer is no. If you're talking about a nonviolent offense, uh, there should be an opportunity, I think, for at least some folks who are offenders, who aren't repeat offenders and who have you know, uh, uh, paid for their crimes, uh, to perhaps be able to have it removed from their records. And, of course, the question is, well, you know, what about the, the, the uh, records that have already been published online? That's where kind of clean slate comes in. It's this idea that uh, there's going to be a comprehensive uh, push to say these are the records that we're going to expunge and these are the sorts of crimes, perhaps, that won't be immediately reported online just so that uh, people have an opportunity to either uh, confront those uh, those offenses uh, and or, or, or to otherwise make sure that they are able to move past them after they've been convicted of them. Now, it isn't for every uh, crime, of course. There are certainly crimes that we everyone should be well aware of. Uh, but I do think that it, it is important that uh, for folks who have paid for their crimes, uh, that at least in some cases, and there's it's in the legislation, it's very uh, relatively uh, nuanced, but uh, if it's a nonviolent offense, uh, in a lot of cases, those crimes would be expunged after a certain period of time and after potentially an application process. But I think that that's a, a, a way for, I don't know if it's going to really get uh, done this year. We'll, we'll see there's been talk in the House and Senate, but I think it is a good idea that at least deserves some discussions that people uh, who have committed crimes and but have also done their time uh, can hopefully move on uh, and, uh, and be able to, for instance, get jobs, which is oftentimes one of the biggest and hardest things to get after you have a record. Once again, I find myself in complete alignment with your observations. Patrick Ishmael, the Show Me Institute. Patrick, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Gary. All right. Up against the clock. Quick break. When we come back, I made some comments about a woman who was crying because her two sons had died. They, they got their hands on some medicine, turned out to be laced with fentanyl, and they both died. And she's blaming the administration for not fixing the border. And I made the point that she was responsible for not teaching her kids, for not teaching them to not take pills from strange people. And then I explained the futility of expecting the federal government to stop these drugs from coming across the border. People wanted to comment. You got your chance coming up right after these important messages on The Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. 22 minutes after the hour. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be with you. 22 minutes after 10 o'clock. We played this audio earlier in the program of this woman who was upset because her two children had overdosed on fentanyl. They took pills from strangers that were that were uh, dosed with fentanyl, and they both died. And she's upset with the administration saying that you know, they should do something about the border to stop this from happening. And my point was, they can't stop it from happening. They can fix the border. They still can't stop it from happening. And they won't stop it from happening 
until they legalize drugs. If you can't go to the drugstore and get something from uh, an above-board retailer, then you go to the black market, and that's where China is making their money. China realizes that they can send fentanyl here, make a killing, and I mean that both literally and uh, you know, financially, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. I pointed out people are in prison, locked up behind armed guards, big walls, iron bars, and they're still getting drugs. You cannot insulate the border. Simply will not happen. Now, we can keep spending billions and billions of dollars. We can continue to incarcerate people forever, but we're not going to stop it. Uh, Peter Christ, a friend of mine, uh, former uh, chief of police, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, in Tonawanda, New York, pointed out that in Saudi Arabia, they'll cut your head off for this. And why do they keep doing that? Because that punishment doesn't work. All right, to the phones we go. A lot of people wanted in on this. Jeff is first in line, so let's get Jeff on board. Jeff, good morning. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, first of all, this is kind of out-of-the-box thinking for today's society, but I have been clean and sober since 1991. Uh, the parents of these young kids are to blame for the simple fact they're not involved in their children's lives. If they were more involved in their children's lives and, and showed them that drugs were not the way to do it, there's only four things that will stop this. Faith, love, understanding, and prayer, and that's it. Because nobody helped me come off of drugs. Me and God got off of drugs for me. But I mean, it's separate for other people. But when the parents start taking more care of their children, more involved in their children's lives, they won't turn to illegal drugs. Well, uh, at the very least, um, if you're going to if you're going to be a drug user, you're better off not buying the drugs out on the street. Uh, but everything else you said, I agree with. Jeff, thank you for the call. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Uh, let's do, uh, let's head down to Jeff City and uh, chat with Bill. Bill, good morning. How are you? I'm good, sir. I don't want to irritate you this morning, but I do disagree with you. Um, you know, it's like saying let's uh, make murder illegal, and then the murders will stop in this country. No, it's, it's just, not. That's not a. That's not an adequate uh, or an accurate. Uh, how, how's it different? Well, the difference is. If I murder you, you don't want to be murdered. I just want to murder you. But if you want to do drugs and I want to sell drugs, nobody is nobody's taking away anybody's right. So they're not okay, they're so not analogous. Like Missouri and several other states just passed recreational marijuana. Do you still think that people aren't going to buy from the guy down the street that's growing plants in his backyard? Uh, it's, it's not. It's not. I mean. Because there's too many restrictions and government regulations. That's ah, thank you. You just you just made my case. Well, there are okay, too many there are too many government restrictions that drive the black market, and that will include all the government sees as tax dollars. They don't see controlling uh, marijuana or the use of it. All they see is tax dollars, and, yes. and that's a fact. But and, and it disrespect. Uh, I just respectfully disagree with with legalizing drugs. Why do you, Why do you think that you have the right? I think it's immoral. To, I think it's immoral. Well, it's immoral to lie. Should we arrest people who lie? 
Well, it depends on who they are. Oh, so it depends on who they are. Well, how does the law work like that? I've never well, seen a law that. Let's go ahead and lock up Merrick Garland, wouldn't you agree? <sighs> or, or Fauci? He, he lied. He's probably got the biggest lie in, in, in the history of this country. I mean, yeah, I agree. Lock up the liars. Uh, the, the, certainly, the Democrats certainly would lock up uh, a lot of Republicans that were uh, against their platform. And you've seen that after all the folks that came up after Trump. Doing Trump things somebody. that are immoral, Bill, doesn't make yeah. them illegal. Yeah. And where does the government have the right to protect you from yourself? Isn't that essentially what they're doing? The government's trying to protect, like Brian always says, stupid people. It's like Social Security. So the government is it's trying... A lot of people... The government came up with Social Security because they figured that people wouldn't save for the retirement. So no, they did it... So Franklin Roosevelt admitted that he did it for the voting, for the votes. And admitted you know, I heard that, something the other day, too, about Social Security. You kind of know me. I know we're going off topic. But did you know that black Americans were discluded from Social Security when it was implemented? No, I didn't know that. That's, that's yeah, interesting. Black, black Americans were were not included in Social Security benefits when it first, when it first was instituted. Well, now it's told. now we're using it to rip Black Americans off. But getting back to the drug war, why do you think the government should be able to protect you from yourself? I don't think the government should protect me from myself. I then think why do you think it's okay for them to tell you you can't use drugs? And you're on a slippery slope there, dude. I mean, no. I, 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 I agree with your concept, but I don't agree with your premise. I, I think that if you legalize drugs, okay, so prohibition. You know, booze was legal up until the 20s, and then prohibition happened, and then, you know, uh, Al Capone and the likes, you know, created a, a black market, and they got rich off of uh, underground liquor. And then, you know, the government said, hey, we're in the Depression, we got to bring booze back. And, and and why did they do that? Not because it was moral, it's because they needed the money. Mm -hmm. And so, but I mean, you can't compare drugs to alcohol. Why isn't it? Didn't the same pathologies develop when they banned alcohol, drive-by shootings, uh, uh, territorial wars over uh, sale of alcohol? Uh, was there not uh, an underground market for alcohol that people were yeah. getting poisoned from? I don't know if they were getting poisoned from it. Well, but if you read market. the history books, you will find that thousands of Americans were blinded, if not killed, because the government was trying to prevent them from drinking. Well, ask Native Americans what they think about liquor. I'm part Native American. I've been in my, you know, my grandparents, parents, and my sister and I were in the bar business. I don't care. Yeah. Well, I mean, respectfully, I just disagree with legalizing hardcore uh, drugs. I mean, I just that's just the way I feel. And more, well, you know, I don't, Bill, I don't blame you, because I was once where you are. I believe just well, as I, you I was do. once pro death penalty, Gary, and I've changed my stance on that. Right. And I'll simply tell you why is because I can't be pro birth and pro death penalty. You can't pick one over the other. You're yep. either eventually, you know I mean? eventually, you may change your mind, just as I did. Uh, because you appear open-minded and pretty damn smart. So I'm going to let it go with that. Bill, thank you for the call. Uh, we're going to have Ron Calzone, a.k.a. Cazzone, on the program. MoFirst.org on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. 
Hey, good morning. Glad to have you with us. It is uh, 9... Uh, no, it's <laughs> I know what time it is. It's 10.35. Uh, it is the Gary Nolan Show on a Think Tank Thursday. Ron Calzone, a.k.a. Gazzone. Gazzone is with us. Mofirst.org. I got a message here um, that came in from Jim, Ron. It says, from the Pachyderm Weekly Updates. The two bills that are concerned with improving the ways that Missouri Constitution may be changed, the Senate Joint Resolution 29, is far superior to the House Joint Resolution 43. Please discuss this leg legislation and its importance, Jim. So I'm going to let you do that. Well, boy, I think Jim probably has his head screwed on pretty straight, frankly. Uh, so... <laughs> He, he is correctly, he, he must be, you know, it's amazing to me how many more citizens are closely watching the process than there used to be, you know, even 10 years ago. Uh, just, there are just a lot of just common everyday individuals that actually know what's happening, and they know kind of what's happening behind the scenes, and they, they know what matters and what doesn't matter legislatively. And so right now, H.J.R. Uh, 28 and uh, I'm sorry, SJR 28 and HJR 43 are the two so-called IP reform bills that have floated to the top. They're probably the only two that have a path to get finished one way or the other. Uh, they're, they're pretty radically different concepts about how to deal with the issue. Uh, however, the good news, I think, from your perspective and my perspective is uh, IP reform is not really part of IP reform anymore. So, in other words, let me explain that. Uh, finally, I think legislators have realized that they should not screw with the petition process. It's already way hard to get a petition on the ballot, particularly for a true grassroots effort. And they know that the people don't want them to mess with that. The people want the ability to make an end run around a responsive or oppressive government. And so they're not going to try to mess with how hard it is for me or you to use the petition process to ask our neighbors, should we make a change in the law? So I think you would find that to be good news. I do. It is so, challenging enough. And frankly, outside, so, uh, you know, big unions and other outside sources have plenty of money to always accomplish it. And the harder you make it, uh, the less likely it is that a grassroots effort will succeed. So leaving the petition side of it alone, good idea. Right, right. M making it harder is a speed bump to the big moneyed interest and it's a deal killer for a grassroots effort so they realize that they realize how unpopular it is and that's been abandoned so the focus now is on the question how sh how hard should it be once something's on the ballot for the people of missouri to actually change the constitution you know should it be right now as it is a simple majority vote so should uh you know 50 percent plus one voter um be enough to change the fundamental law of the land, the Constitution, and or should it be? Should there be a higher bar? Uh, I think there should be a higher bar, but I think it should be a reasonable, reasonably attainable higher bar. And I think myself, the, the most important criteria should be whether or not we're getting a true consensus of all Missourians. You know, so the thing that we've you know we've figured out over the years is that right now, when it's a fifty percent plus one. That means that the urban centers kind of run the show. If you get enough votes in Kansas City and St. Louis and maybe throw Columbia in there, uh, you can get anything done. And, and that's what's particularly problematic. Uh, the Founding Fathers recognized 
that that's not the way to govern uh, a body politic that's that's full of diverse opinions and diverse uh, values and diverse worldviews. And that's why on almost every level you see something called concurrent majority applied. So when you elect the president, it's not by a national popular vote. The states actually elect presidents through the Electoral College. And when you uh, ratify an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, you don't do it by a national popular vote. It it has to be accomplished by states. And, of course, it's a little different situation. The the union is made up of sovereign states, semi-sovereign states. Uh, But it's also true with any kind of legislative process. When we pass a bill in the Missouri General Assembly, uh, it's done based on a geographic concurrence. Representatives and senators represent different parts of the state. And so you have to have people, you know, so people from all across the state actually get a say in what becomes Missouri law. So the only thing that's not done that way is amending the Constitution. The only thing that allows a concentration of people in just a few parts of the state to run the whole show, uh, some, the founders called that tyranny of the majority. Uh, The only way tyranny of the majority is allowed is amending the Constitution. So that's the radical difference between uh, SJR 28 and HJR 43. HJR 43, as it is right now, would raise the threshold for ratifying amendments to the Missouri Constitution to a 60% vote. And so, uh, admittedly, that would require that you get more outstate vote to support something before it becomes part of the Constitution. But if there was something that uh, was popular across the whole state, it would let the urban areas have a 40% veto over anything that the rest of the state wanted. And so that's still kind of tyranny of the majority. Uh, on the other hand, SJR 28 requires two conditions to be met. You have to have a statewide uh, majority vote just like you do now. Plus, you'd have to have a majority vote by people, by the people in, in the districts, in more than half of the state's 163 House districts. So that, by nature, requires that you have geographic consensus as well as numeric consensus. Well, I think that uh, does sound like a better a better way to go. Uh, I want to change directions here for just a minute. Uh, status uh, of the initiative petition uh, is important, but I am curious... I'm curious about the healthcare industrial complex. What's going on at the Capitol with healthcare? Well, you know, it's it's not so much about healthcare per se, but you know, we just came out of of two and a half plus years of what I like to call COVID tyranny. So we have uh, unelected bureaucrats that were were saying that you've got to wear a mask or. Uh, you know, you have to socially distance. Your business is not an essential business, so you've got to shut down. You've got stay-at-home orders where the public was told that they can't go out unless they have, you know, some special reason to be out, you know, so forth. All that stuff that, you, you know, ad nauseum. The kind of thing that Cole County Judge Green very rightly said were illegal and or unconstitutional. All of these COVID-era laws and ordinance, well, they weren't laws, actually. They were just orders. Uh, without proper legal background. And and so there's been a plethora of bills that have been designed to push back at that, to say that you can't force somebody to get a vaccination, you can't force somebody to shut their business down, you can't, all those kind of things. And and ultimately, uh, very little is getting done, even in spite of, of everybody recognizing how wrongheaded all that policy was, how not only did it not 
slow COVID down, but it actually probably created problems, some of those policies. But nothing can be done about any of that, apparently, because the healthcare industrial complex is so powerful in, in the state of Missouri. You know, the, the, uh, the Missouri Chamber of Commerce, you know, if you're a member of the Missouri Chamber of Commerce, you have to understand that the hospitals run that organization. The hospitals, you know, you, you, you might have a bunch of members that are just average businesses, but the hospitals are the ones that actually get to determine the policy. And you've got organizations like uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics that has an incredible amount of influence at the Capitol. And these are radical leftists. These are people that, that don't believe in religious freedom and they don't believe in parents' rights. Uh, they're the ones that want to see uh, five-year-olds get the COVID vaccine. Um, these are people that uh, are pushing the, the, the transsexual agenda. Uh, they're pro-abortion. They're anti-gun. I mean, anything that's leftist. And, and what's incredible to me is that, that people that consider themselves to be conservative Republicans are giving them the time of day. Well, the reason they are is because they bring a lot of money to the table. The Uniparty. Democrats and Republicans. Unbelievable. Um, if you want to find out what's going on at the Capitol, go to MoFirst.org. Because that's where Ron Calzone hangs out. And he keeps a real close watch on what's going on down there in Jeff City. Ron, thank you for being with us this morning. Have a great day. All right, buddy. Take care. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. It's Think Tank Thursday. Still getting responses on the drug war commentary. RJ says, I don't agree with your idea of legalizing drugs. People will still buy black market drugs because they will always be cheaper. This is not true, RJ. Drugs are worth pennies on the dollar. Circumventing law enforcement is what makes them so expensive on the street, and it is the government that will make them expensive at the drugstore. Get the government out of it, and we'll all be better off. Quick break, Gary Nolan Show, Zimmer Radio Network. Hey, good morning. It is, uh, well, it is the Gary Nolan Show, and it is Think Tank Thursday. Uh, 50, 5 50 minutes after 10 o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Dave Rowland coming up. A little less than half an hour from now, uh, there has been an effort to revive the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, we'll tell you where that stands. Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Well, the justices didn't seem too welcoming, but we'll get Dave Rowland's take on that. Incredibly damning Fox News documents stunned some legal experts. Uh, the Supreme Court says domestic spying is too secret to be challenged in court. Oh, you can't make this stuff up. Attorney General Andrew Bailey wants Kim Gardner out ASAP. Uh, yeah, so do I. Uh, and I don't even live in St. Louis. Um, Tavern Keeper's last stand against eminent domain at the Alamo. Uh, those are all coming up and more with Dave Rowland. Uh, in the meantime, uh, apparently the Babylon Bee has done some homework, Brian. I noticed uh, that, yeah. They I did a surprised. good job, too. They looked into global warming, uh, anthropogenic global warming, or glo global climate change, as they like to say now. Uh, and after doing some some research this should silence the climate deniers once and for all yeah i think they were surprised at what they uncovered themselves uh -huh. to our great shock they write ended up discovering 10 absolutely undeniable proofs that climate change is real and they say read them and weep climate denier
Number one, it's hot. You go outside and it's a bit toasty. You can't deny it any longer. The climate is changing. Number two, it's cold. You go outside and it's a bit nippy. You can't deny it any longer. The climate is changing. Number three, it's raining. Rain is absolute proof of climate change. Number four, it's not raining. A lack of rain is absolute proof of climate change. Number five, it's a pleasant day. A nice day outside in Minnesota, climate change. It's not a pleasant day. A not-so-nice day outside in California, climate change. It's snowing. It has literally never snowed before cars were invented. It's climate change. It's not snowing. It has literally never not snowed before cars were invented. Climate change. It is summer. When it's summer, it's hot. Proving the climate is changing. It's winter. When it's winter, it's cold. Proving the climate is changing. Was your mind changed? We hope so, they write. Now give the government hundreds of billions of dollars to solve this problem as they've done such a great job with everything else. <laughs> oh, that's just good. Uh, and, and you and I have gone over this in the past, Brian. Everything, have, is, yeah. everything is climate change. I don't care what it I is. Mean, it's I'm just checking the current temperature right now. It's 40 on the nose. Last climate year, change. Last year at this time, it was 39 Oh, there, there, that is proof positive. I had to go back to the historical records to verify that, but yeah, I mean, they're right. See, now, when you stepped outside this morning, I noticed this, I stepped outside and I thought, wow, it feels a degree colder. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Than last year. It's like something is not right here. Yeah. need to figure out what it is. You can, you can just, you can just feel it. You can. Uh, A great piece in the New York Post, 10 myths told by COVID experts and now debunked. You know, I I can understand if somebody uh, in a health department makes a suggestion. And I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with health departments across the country looking at what available data there is and making suggestions. I do have a problem with them looking at things and getting mandates uh, created out of them. Well, they have to. Because? You're You're too too stupid. But they create mandates. And everybody marches in lockstep because they have to. You're a non-essential business. Uh, You have to wear masks, social distancing. Uh, You want to eat in a restaurant, you can uh, can stand up wearing the mask, but you can sit (laughs) down and take the mask off. That was such a funny one. (laughs) And that's not... We even had Eric the Liberal call and say, that's not true, that's fake news. And we sent him the article showing that that's the very thing that they were requesting. Pull the mask down in between bites, put it back up. Yes. And he kind of silenced him. Yes. Um, That was California, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was. But they come up with all these mandates, and they shouldn't have the power to mandate any of this. Everybody should have their own opinion, their own view of things, and do it the way they think it works best. If that had happened, the economy would not have been tanked. We wouldn't have spent literally trillions of dollars trying to recover And I think we would have gotten to herd immunity much faster. 
And I'm going to tell you something else. I keep reading about how a million and a half people in the United States died from the China flu. And I don't think it's anywhere near that many. I don't even think it's close. You probably think I'm crazy, but I'm going to tell you right now that just because somebody got in a motorcycle accident and died while they were positive for, for COVID doesn't mean they died from COVID. They just had it. And then the way the rules were written incentivizing hospitals to declare COVID deaths so that they got more money, it's just ridiculous. And when you look at the people who were vulnerable, you know, it, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the people were much older, uh, had a weight problem. Apparently, body fat is a great place for COVID to hang around. Um, we, we stopped people from experimenting with different uh, medications. Remember, you, you couldn't take hydroxychloroquine. That isn't going to work. And, uh, you know, stay away from everything else except get the vaccine. The one-size-government-fits-all means everybody gets in lockstep. And when they're wrong, everybody is in trouble. And somehow, we seem to believe that the government is supposed to do these things. They are not. So there are, at the New York Post, 10 myths told by COVID, uh, COVID experts that have since been debunked. Misinformation number one, natural immunity offers little protection compared to vaccinated immunity. Lancet study looked at 65 major studies in 19 countries on natural immunity. Researchers concluded that natural immunity was the le was at least as effective as the primary COVID vaccine series. Um, misinformation number two, masks prevent COVID transmission. Well, there are study after study after study that indicate that is just not true. One study published last month by a highly respected Oxford research team found that masks had no significant impact on COVID transmission. Number three, school closures reduce COVID transmission. Apparently, that turned out not to be right either. <clears throat> Misinformation number four, myocarditis from the vaccine is less common than from the infection, and that turns out not to be true. Uh, number five, young people benefit from the vaccine booster, but then we know now that isn't true either. Vaccine mandates increased vaccination rates. Well, some question about that, too. All right, we'll uh, wrap this up, and uh, Dave Rowland will be with us. That'll be about the quarter after. It's the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show 